0: Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. This is the second of a two-part discussion recorded at the Oslo Freedom Forum with Megha Rajagopalan, China Bureau Chief and Asia Correspondent of BuzzFeed News. We dive in mid-conversation on China, I'm asking some random contextual stuff about the impact of authoritarianism and economics, and Megha gives some fascinating anecdotes about her experiences working in China, dealing with government minders and stuff like that. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, episode 11, then be sure to do that. Then we move on from China to some slightly more controversial stuff. Mega's other reporting has been on the effects of Facebook on some South Asian countries like Cambodia, Myanmar and Sri Lanka, including amplifying communal violence and inadvertently empowering autocrats. And by the way, the video we talk about at the end, you'll want to see that. The link's in the description of the podcast. <laughs> So I have a strong belief that living under authoritarianism for extended periods affects the moral character of a people. You become desensitized to injustice and cruelty and you start to ignore injustice when it happens in front of you. You possibly become desensitized to violence. This is one of the reasons why even after coming out of the rule of an authoritarian regime you can be messed up for a long time afterwards. And I think this explains for a lot of what Libya is going through in in the post-revolutionary situation, where it's just basically descended into Mad Max chaos. It's to be expected in a country where for 40 years, people were trained in a system that, in order to get ahead, you had to stab someone in the back. Nobody is your friend. And if you kind of like show compassion, you're showing weakness and you're going to get crushed. I see stuff online about the bystander effect in China and how there are all these videos of, terrible things happening, like a child being hit by a car and and people are like walking past for 15 minutes, like ignoring it?
1: Yeah. I mean, before talking about the bystander effect, I would say like, I do think that there's this phenomenon of people in China being very conscious of like competition for resources. Maybe that's a population thing, but I think it's also just like coming out of that history of the cultural revolution. You often see this with like older people, I think, where, you know, you get on the subway And people just scramble for the seats. I've like never seen that anywhere else. And like people really like they'll shove you. And like it's very strange to me because it's just a seat on the subway. But the funny thing about that is if, if you go to China as like, you know, as a total outsider, like a tourist or something, you would come away and think like, God, these people really have no manners and they don't care about other human beings. But there's another side to it, which is that, you know, if it's your family member or your friend, you will do anything to get that seat for them. And like, so it's almost like a way of showing that you care about the people that are very close to you, but you don't care as much about strangers, right? Like, you're not, you don't have any compassion for strangers, but you have so much compassion for the people that are close to you. And like, you see that when people, invite you to their homes, so they're just like the warmest, like nicest people, they'll force food on you and all this stuff, but then strangers are so cold in China, like really mean to you for no reason, like they'll bump into you and they won't apologize or like they'll slam a door on you. And so it's like, I think it's really easy to get a bad impression of the country.
0: So it's like compassion is a scarce resource and you can't spare it for strangers.
1: I mean, I'm reluctant to see this because like maybe it's like reductionist and, you know, I'm not Chinese, of course, but, you know, I do think that like the Cultural Revolution, it was a time of star right? It was real, real competition for resources. I think there's that memory of that time. And there's still this kind of like hyper capitalism happening in China. The gap between the rich and the poor is like this really, really bad social problem. And I think because of that, there's this kind of mad race to get ahead and get more and, uh, you know, try to get better things, even if it comes at the expense of others. About the bystander effect, I would say like, you know, I am very critical of this. I think that I've seen these articles in the media and I think that it discounts that this this phenomenon has also occurred in the West, right? The, the most famous example of the bystander effect is in the U.S., right? In New York, was it like a, a woman was attacked in an alley and nobody stopped?
0: So it's the Kitty Genovese case that you're thinking of, which oh. is basically an attack uh, which happened in an alley which was in plain view of... A large number of apartments and when they investigated later they found that lots of people had basically seen it happen from their windows and they didn't intervene
1: right yeah and it's and it's been determined that you know somebody is more likely to stop for someone in distress on a deserted road rather than a crowded road right because you perceive that I'm the only one that can help out versus a place like a city where you know you think oh this should be somebody else's responsibility so in China, I've seen this both ways, like I've had friends that have gotten into things like bike accidents and like nobody stops. There, there was like a famous case of this, this foreigner who passed out in a subway car and everybody else who was in the car just left the car like nobody helped him, you know. And that was sort of interpreted to mean they, they were afraid that if they were going to help them, that they would be held liable or something. Yeah, there's there's uh, this phenomenon of like pregnant women aren't able to get taxis in Beijing because the taxi driver is afraid that they're going to give birth in the taxi or that they'll, there's something will go wrong and they'll be held liable. Like that definitely does happen. And there's a lot of anguish within China about that. It always becomes this big phenomenon on social media and whatever, and like people love to talk about how um, you know people have no morals anymore, and like this is because of urbanization and because of capitalism and all sorts of stuff. Not not capitalism, but market reforms. I've also experienced the opposite. I would like to tell a story. A couple of years ago, there was this really horrible disaster on the Yangtze River. Basically, this cruise ship capsized in the midst of a storm. And I think something like 400 people were killed. It was very, very tragic. I was working as a reporter for Reuters at the time, and we had to go and cover it. And like the whole town was flooded by lots and lots of media, foreign media, local media, plus like officials from other parts of the country. And then also a lot of people from Shanghai because the people who had been on the tour boat were not from that little town. They were from Shanghai. They were like holidayers that wanted to take a holiday on the Yangtze River. And so their families had come. And the people in this town really had no connection to this cruise ship, but they had really mostly never seen any foreigners before, didn't have a lot of interaction with people from big cities necessarily. Like, we're just kind of in an isolated part, you know, of China on the banks of the Yangtze River. And they reacted in this way that I've never experienced like anywhere else in the world. Basically, like when they saw us, they they wouldn't let us pay for anything. Like, you know, if you went to a convenience store, like they wouldn't even let you pay for a Snickers bar. They would come up to you on the street and force food on you. The taxi drivers wouldn't accept money. Random people were giving people lifts. The government on the first day issued some order, like don't let any foreign journalists stay in these hotels because they didn't want foreign journalists there. We ended up finding this one unauthorized hotel. They could have charged us $500, but they charged us only their standard rate, which was like $15 a night, even though they knew. They literally like they went into my suitcase and like washed my clothes for me because they realized that like we were we were working so hard that we were like running out of clothes. So that, to me, is like, that's the counterexample of, like, Chinese people don't care about strangers. Like, I think they do. But to me, this is like a rural-urban divide. I think people in, like, small places in China can be extremely warm.
0: I'd also suggest that there's an element of it's it's big government. I, I don't mean this as something uniquely about authoritarian regimes, but mm-hmm. in countries where the government is very large and has assumed a great deal of responsibility about all aspects of society, mm-hmm. people kind of externalize their expectations for... Um, moral responsibility as well. So when, for example, even you have a welfare state, people assume that taking, par- taking care of homeless people is the responsibility of the state now. Yeah. So you get this attitude of not there's a homeless person there, I should help them, but there's a homeless person there. Why isn't the government doing something?
1: That is so true. And you can see this in China. It's the world's second largest economy, has you know a lot of billionaires, a lot of rich people, and yet their rates of charitable giving are very, very low for a country as rich as they are. And there are some exceptions to that, like the earthquake in Sichuan, for instance. You know, part of it is sort of mistrust in charities. But by and large, there is this feeling like the government's supposed to be providing for me. They're supposed to fix everything. I covered a chemical uh, plant explosion, and it destroyed a lot of homes, and people lost a lot, and there was loss of life and everything. And I just was thinking at that time, like, if this had happened in the West, the first thing that would happen is that the company would be sued. And... In China, it's not like that because there's no, you know, there's there's no place to go for redress of grievances. All you can do is ask the government for money. It's not like the government owned the plant, right? So, in some sense, it's like is this even the government's responsibility? But the thing is, there's no other channel to do that, so they're they're sort of stuck asking the government for everything. So I think it's sort of like you get into that mentality.
0: Sometimes the lack of any other channel to do something is actually deliberate. One thing which really surprised me when I learned about it was that. After the Green Movement in Iran, when um, you know mass protests took to the streets to protest against stolen elections when Ahmadinejad was re-elected, after that was crushed, a lot of those activists kind of stepped back and decided, you know, we're not going to manage to affect political change, and they redirected their, their energy to humanitarianism. And the government actually shut down a lot of the charities that they started because they were worried that the provision of aid by people other than the government would take legitimacy away from the government. So in one incident there was an earthquake and these charities were prevented from delivering aid because the the government basically said this is our job you do not get involved here.
1: Wow, that's crazy.
0: So we're talking about suspicion of foreigners. So I have a story of where I expected it and I didn't find it. I visited China a couple of years ago and I was like looking online and reading stuff about what to expect and I I read that you should expect to be stared at a lot and pointed at and, and hear, and to hear lao which means foreigner. Right. And like people are like muttering about you basically. And I went to Beijing and I didn't experience that once. And thinking about it, I basically decided that, oh, this must have been written a few years ago. Right. And China has developed so fast that the sight of a foreigner has become very common. Actually, it, it doesn't stand out anymore. And I think this suspicion of foreigners is partially, in a, in a large part, consequence of isolation. So in Libya, we were cut off from most of the rest of the world for a long time um, because of sanctions, because uh, Gaddafi basically went on a terrorism spree and and sponsored pretty much every liberation movement and terrorist group in the world. Right. So for a long time, Libya was basically economically constrained. There was no progress economically. There were no jobs. There was no business. Um, Nobody had any reason to be in Libya. And you wouldn't see anyone there unless, you know, there was something up. You wouldn't even see journalists because they weren't allowed. Aid workers? No. Okay. Um, No, I don't know of uh, any humanitarian disasters in Libya during that time. There was maybe a a bit of poverty, but no, like, major disasters. But as a consequence of that, people became very unused to seeing people from outside in their country. And it became something very exotic. Even afterwards, after the country started opening up in the 2000s, you would get that kind of something special when you see like a white person why are they here what are they doing sometimes it would be suspicion sometimes it would actually uh, manifest in welcomingness and like being very hospitable because you know this is a visitor and we don't get them very often but, like do you agree with what i said about china
1: yeah obviously china was very very isolated until even the 80s i think even now, I, I think you're, you were right to sense that it was outdated, uh, to that people would point at you and say, la, why? But, you know, there's still lots of places in China where that would happen. Beijing is a big city. Yeah, there's, like, lots of foreigners there. People in China, like, they watch... Hollywood movies, like they have exposure to foreigners, like through media and stuff like that. But you know, that's a really recent phenomenon, I think. There's a guy named, I actually don't even know his real name, but his Chinese name is Da Shen. He's like this white Canadian guy. His Chinese is just impeccable. And he's been on Chinese TV, like since the, I think the late eighties, maybe. And I think he's like the first foreigner that a lot of Chinese people were exposed to. So now there's there's still this phenomenon where like people see like a tall white guy and they'll be like, oh, you seem like, you're just like Da Shen. And like Canadians really hate it because that's like the only thing people know about Canada.
0: I haven't seen that, but I've seen like some funny videos about Chinese people thinking every black person is like a basketballer.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. People used to ask me, like, are you related to the Obamas? I'm like, (laughs) not a lot of people, but um, a lot of people uh, are like, oh, you must be a really amazing dancer because they've seen Bollywood movies. So, I mean, under Gaddafi, what did people know about or like, how much exposure do they have to foreign culture?
0: It was quite minimal. Satellite TV changed things a lot when it came around. But before that, the press was very tightly regulated Even like what kind of books could get into the country were very tightly regulated. My dad has this story about a foreign book that he had, which was actually it was political and it was about Gaddafi, So it was extra risky, Mm -hmm. but he basically forgot it on top of the wardrobe when he left the country and he ran back to like tell his dad, you know, get rid of this. I I left this here. And he like immediately ran into the house, picked it up without speaking to anyone, took it outside and burned it in the yard.
1: Oh, man! yeah, that's
0: that's the kind of fear that you would have.
1: Right. You know, I wasn't really covering China at a time where the surveillance was low tech. So I've always wondered, like in places where they don't have access to like all this, like really, really cutting edge stuff. I mean, how does it make it different? Like, is it less omnipresent or is it just as powerful, but just in different ways?
0: I think we can be kind of desensitized to it because it's so high-tech and it's so advanced and it's also so ubiquitous that you expect it. I've heard stories from people who were in Libya in the 80s and 90s who report like using the phone to call relatives abroad and hearing someone, a third person, breathing on the other end of the phone. One story that I heard was him basically saying something on the phone and this third party like interjecting and shouting at him to like shut up and get off the phone.
1: Like, how how dare
0: you say this? Yeah. So people were, like, extremely aware that they were being listened to. And they didn't know when it was and when it wasn't. Obviously, the technology wasn't there like it is today to just basically follow you through every footstep you take. But you wouldn't know when they were listening. So you'd basically permanently silence yourself. And it leads to that situation where you can't even talk in your own home because are they listening?
1: Yeah. And I think it's that ambiguity that is the real source of power
0: and i think isolation has also been used as a weapon there are a few dictatorships that have done stuff like ban learning the english language right um they've done stuff like putting in place exit visas so you can't leave the country very easily right and screening people who leave and come back so that basically they limit your exposure to the foreign world under the impression that doing so will limit your exposure to you know quote-unquote corrupting influences or seditious ideas and stuff like that and that's one of the things that's really collapsed in the age of social media there are stories of like people during the civil war in syria they're being bombed they're besieged they can't get out of the the or the suburbs of uh, damascus these kids and what they're doing is going online and teaching themselves to code yeah and like reading political theory and educating themselves that that couldn't happen in the 80s
1: i think there is something of that phenomenon in China. Obviously people much less restricted now than they would have been 20, 30 years ago. People can travel pretty freely. They do restrict things like the number of Hollywood movies for instance that can be shown and obviously which films that can be shown. I think I believe the Big Bang theory, which is this American TV show that I, for for the life of me I couldn't explain to you why, but it's extremely popular in China, but um you know that's been banned before. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to these choices, because that kind of stuff isn't necessarily political, but it is about exposure to foreign culture, I think.
0: Well, you'd be surprised at what can do it, because there's, there's, a, there's um, a lady here called Yeonmi Park. Yeah. Uh, she's a North Korean escapee, and uh, in her talk at the Oslo Freedom Forum a couple of years ago, she basically said how the thing that did it to her wasn't like some piece of political information. It was the movie Titanic, Right. that had been smuggled into the country. And she said watching that, she realized for the very first time in her life that there are things that a person might die for which yeah. aren't the nation or the, the state or the, the glorious motherland.
1: I think there's there's another side to this. And I'm curious how you would see this as a Libyan who lives in the West now. Those of us who are from the West, we sort of have this misconception sometimes that all it takes is exposure. And I think that for most people, that's not true. Yunni is, a, I think she's a very special person. Like, she's extremely smart, you know, has overcome a lot in her life. And it doesn't surprise me that something like that would be kind of like a trigger for her because she, she's really a, a thinker. Like, she seems like the kind of person who's always been a bit of a free thinker. And, you know, it, it just took kind of new information to bring that out of her. But I, I do think like sometimes we try to project that on everybody and it just unfortunately it just it isn't true that people just start to care about human rights just because they hear about it or, or they go to a country where it exists. So like, for instance, when Kim Jong Un took power, a lot of people were like, well, this guy studied in Swiss boarding school, so he knows what the outside world is like and like maybe that's good. Clearly, that's not the case, right? I mean, how many dictators like around the world have gone to really nice schools in Europe and the U.S.? And like, has it made any impact?
0: It's, it's funny because the son of uh, Gaddafi, Saif, Saif Gaddafi, actually did a PhD. By I used did a PhD very loosely because um, <laughs> there are credible allegations that it was done for him at the London School of Economics on democratization, I believe. And then when the revolution broke out he basically came back and appeared on state television and threatened people it's not a simple equation of a plus b equals c and you know you give someone this and they'll believe in this yeah a lot of it is down to people's own agency and they have to make their own minds up what you can do is make sure that there is enough material that if someone wants to explore those ideas it's possible for them yeah and also make sure that there is like freedom and and, like the, the space for them to do so safely and also the space for them to riff off of these ideas and try their own permutations and say you know so again talking about what we were talking about earlier about making ideas contextual maybe this idea of separation of powers this system that was built in the u.s 250 years ago maybe it actually needs to look a bit more like this for uh, my country today mm. rather than it's it's not a case of I've, I've told you about democracy now why won't you go and do it
1: right exactly Yeah. And, you know, it's not just leaders, it's, um, you know, there's huge amounts of Chinese students that are, like, studying in the West right now, especially in places like the U.S. and Australia. For a long time, there was this expectation of, you know, if they study in the West, they'll understand Western values and, like, Western – we like Western values. We think they're good. So maybe they'll take some of those things back to China. And, I mean, that's not really the case. And, like, there's – I think there's, like, totally understandable reasons. Like, I think probably Chinese students probably face a lot of discrimination in the West. And it's not like if you just study in the U.S., right? Like you don't, it's not like you are internalizing Western systems or anything like that.
0: But a lot of the time, they bring things back in ways that you don't expect, or in ways that only manifest many years later. I was fascinated to see a couple of years ago when the Saudi government announced a plan for basically implementing taxation in order to diversify the revenue streams of the government because oil, the oil price collapsed, right. and they were like the the budget was in deficit. And some Saudi students started a hashtag saying no taxation without representation. And that, that's like straight out of the American Revolution. If that specific thing hadn't happened, those students would have probably never mentioned it. Right. And, and they, they probably never went to the West and thought, I'm coming back. And the, the thing I learned that was my favorite thing, what I'm really bringing home. Like they ne- <laughs> they probably never thought that. But right. just by, you know, being exposed to that possibly in their surroundings, they like it came to mind when when it was like, Relevant.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, as an American, like, living abroad, like, it's definitely exposed me to, like, so many new ideas. Like, I think every culture has its own dogmas, like, especially in the US, we think that gun violence is just something that has to happen. You know, Americans just think this because we're not exposed to anything else. And like it takes like living abroad to realize, oh, like other societies don't have this problem,
0: you know? Yeah. And one of the biggest barriers can be like exceptionalism or a sense of superiority. And and that that also exists everywhere. So, like you said, it can be um, it it exists in China when you think, you know, those systems are for the rest of the world and not for us. Right. Um, It can exist in the US. It's it's kind of a, a human feature that we all need to overcome. We've spoken a lot about China, and I want to ask you about some of your work in other Southeast Asian countries. Um, you've written a lot about Facebook and how that's been affecting Southeast Asian democracies. Is it democracies or?
1: Yeah, it's a spectrum, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, Southeast Asian countries in general, I think.
0: And, and how it's basically the, when I say affecting, I don't mean in a positive way.
1: Right. I think it's double-edged. Like, I'm not going to say Facebook is all bad for these countries or, or all good. But I think the reason that we have to talk about this is that it's important, right? It's, it's much more important to these countries than it used to be. And in many of these places, it's more important to them than they are to Facebook as markets. So it, it creates this kind of perverse dynamic where people in these countries really want Facebook to act almost like a regulator, Uh, But Facebook is a private company and it has a, you know, a pretty small staff for its reach. So it doesn't really have the resources to do all the things that it's being called on to do. But it's also having these like really, really outsized effects on these countries, politics and culture.
0: And you wrote a report about what this was doing in Sri Lanka.
1: Yeah. So Sri Lanka is a good example. Facebook's role in Sri Lanka, it's not as extreme as places like Cambodia and Myanmar, where Facebook is functionally the Internet. Um, it's, it's not quite like that in Sri Lanka, but nonetheless, it's very important. I think definitely more widely used in Twitter, for instance. And Sri Lanka, you know, came out of a civil war quite recently, has really ro- deeply rooted ethnic tensions between uh, the Sinhala ma- uh, majority and the ethnic minorities who are basically, I think it's like 80% Sinhala, 10% Tamil and 10% Muslim. And there's this phenomenon of really, really vicious hate speech on Facebook. And it's like, it's either in Sinhala or Tamil rather than English. And it'll be like, like memes or images or text. And it'll be stuff like, Oh, they'll say, like, oh, Muslims are dogs. We, should, we need to take care of this program. Like, they shouldn't be in this country. They're, like, reproducing. And it'll be, like, fake news. Like, there's this pervasive myth that Muslims are seeking to sterilize Sinhala women so that they can take over the
0: country. And is it reaching the, the levels of incitation to violence?
1: I think so, yeah, in many of these cases. And basically, it's like if you look at these messages and you would translate them into English— it would, it's like very, very obvious that if somebody wrote that in English on their profile, it would be removed. Like there would be no question that you can't write stuff like that on Facebook, right? Like if I wrote on my Facebook, oh, kill all the X or whatever, for sure it would be re- removed. Yeah. But Facebook until recently only employed two people to monitor content in Sinhala language. And I suppose their rationale for that is that, you know, it's a, it's a small language, small number of speakers, but it is the majority language in Sri Lanka. And if you think about Facebook as the public square, as we said, it's the place where the majority of discourse is happening. Essentially, you're you're saying that these two people are deciding what goes and what doesn't go for an entire country.
0: Wow, that's that's a pretty stark way of putting it. And, and basically, they're not managing.
1: Yeah, they, yeah, I mean, they've promised to do better now because there was a lot of kind of media pressure after this bout of violence that happened earlier this year.
0: So um, so basically, riots broke out in, t- in, in the streets and shops were set on fire and stuff.
1: Yeah, in central Sri Lanka. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, it's not that Facebook caused any of this. It's just kind of amplifying the voices of people who are like much more extreme, right? Yeah. So it's like amplifying the voices of people who are inciting violence. And it's not like the traditional media in Sri Lanka has been super great and the government has certainly played a role and there's been, you know, a lot of problems with impunity. Um, But the thing about Facebook is that they have a set of standards and they say that they're going to enforce them. Right. But they enforce them in very different ways in places that speak English versus places with small languages.
0: So it's not a case of malice, but it's cases of inconsistency and, and possibly incompetence, lack of adequate attention paid to these cases. Um, and thinking you can just cruise by and basically they haven't realized the importance of their platform to many parts of the world and the things that can be done on it yeah
1: i think that's the charitable explanation yeah i would say um i will i would add to that that sri lanka has a pretty vibrant civil society and they have researchers there who have been looking at this phenomenon of um the links between hate speech and communal violence since uh, 2014 which is before a lot of people were thinking about facebook in this context and um there's this Think Tank called the Center for Policy Alternatives and they published like paper after paper about this and they were lobbying Facebook officials. There are activists in the country that are going to these digital rights conferences and they find Facebook officials and they're like lobbying them and just begging them to do something. And then the Facebook officials would be like, yeah, we we understand it's important. You know, they'd be like open and receptive, but then nothing happens. So it's not that Facebook didn't know about the problem. There's clearly a conscious choice that, you know this isn't really important enough for us to put a lot of resources into and i think that's now starting to change because of so much of the pressure on facebook but it really took like i think some international attention to put that on the map
0: yeah and is something similar happening in cambodia
1: so in all these countries the problems are different there's problems ranging from things like state-backed trolling to you know hate speech that's not being regulated to kind of links with governments that have been criticized by civil society groups like, all of this stuff is happening in South Asia and Southeast Asia right now. Um, and the the common thread is, as, as one activist put to me, Facebook is the absentee landlord. But so the, the issue in Cambodia that I wrote about is that, you know, Facebook is so popular in Cambodia that it's effectively synonymous with the Internet. It's, like, very, very widely used. So just to give you a little bit of political background on Cambodia, it's run by this guy named Hun Sen. He's effectively an autocrat. They have had elections. They're going to have an election in the past. Like, their elections, you can't call them, like, completely fair or anything. But, like, you know, they have been fiercely contested and fiercely fought. And there have been really good campaigns by the opposition and and all that sort of stuff. Hun Sen has basically held on to power for a very long time. And last year, he dissolved several independent media outlets – And he has disbanded the opposition and put the opposition leader in jail. So standard autocratic behavior straight Uh, out
0: of the Arab tyrant manual.
1: Exactly. And uh, another thing that he's been doing is um, trying to crack down on speech on Facebook. So they don't have the power to censor Facebook, but they can really keep tabs. And they do. And like I interviewed Hun Sen's like Facebook manager. And he told me, like, when we see somebody uh, saying stuff that they shouldn't be saying on Facebook. Like, we'll give them a warning.
0: The way you said that, yeah. it's like you use the term Facebook manager in, in the way that we would say a <laughs> ministry.
1: It, it, I mean, it's a little bit like that. Like, this guy is a senior aide to Hun Sen. He travels with him all the time. And Hun Sen, I should note, is apparently very good at Facebook. So, there was the study by Burson Marsteller that found that he's the third most engaged world leader. So if you think about how small Cambodia is, that's like pretty remarkable. And this guy is writing in Khmer, right? They're a language. He's not writing in English. And just as context, the first and second most engaged world leaders are Trump and Modi. Yeah, and he's gotten he has this kind of like populist flavor to his Facebook. Like he posts a lot of selfies, for instance.
0: You've basically told us that they can't really censor Facebook explicitly, but they have like a, a minister, effectively a minister <laughs> and a team behind him who are monitoring what people are saying in the country on Facebook and giving them warnings and possibly going beyond that if it continues.
1: Yeah, people have been jailed over stuff they posted on Facebook in Cambodia. Not like a ton, ton, ton of people, but like enough that there's a chilling effect for sure.
0: And does Facebook know about this? Have they taken any kind of position towards the Cambodian government using their platform in this way?
1: So this is the thing. The opposition in Cambodia feels pretty strongly that they've been treated unfairly by Facebook. And they, they're sort of justified in feeling that way, I think, because basically Hun Sen's Facebook manager was telling me that they have this kind of direct channel of communication with Facebook, which isn't surprising because Facebook, you know, they communicate with lots of governments. Right. So they'll email them, you know, they have like a, a way of telling them what they want. Hun Sen, obviously, he's something like uh, 10 or 11 million followers, like high profile user for sure. And part of that is that they'll suggest to Facebook, you know, maybe you should take down this account. So that's a complicated question, right? Because it's not like Facebook has any interest in censoring dissenters in Cambodia, but they have their rules and they will take stuff down if it violates their rules. So Hun Sen's team, for instance, they happen to know that one of Facebook's rules is that they don't allow anonymous accounts. So a lot of people in Cambodia are opening these anonymous Facebook accounts because they don't want to post under their own name for obvious reasons. Facebook doesn't implement this or they don't enforce this rule in 100% of cases. They only enforce it if it's brought to their attention. Now the Cambodian government has a way to bring it to their attention in a very direct way, right? So I think they find that helpful to them. So they, they specifically seek out these cases that they think are going to violate Facebook's rules anyway.
0: So it's almost like there's a team of policy experts who are making sure that Facebook very consistently follows its uh, terms of service towards one side of the debate, and the other side is not being consistently monitored.
1: Right. So the ex-opposition leader, his name is Sam Rainsy, and he lives in exile. And um, his niece, who is like this social media wizard, like she was telling me that they tried for ages to get Facebook to engage on some of these issues and they just like never heard back from them like and i mean it's hard to say why like i asked facebook about it and they said you know they sort of gave it a shot but it like i mean they they said that they did try to engage with them but i mean the opposition also sent me email traffic that showed they they kind of like left off on the correspondence so it sort of seems like something that, that got a little bit lost one of the problems the opposition has is that there was some kind of study that found that about a third of hun Sen's followers on facebook are he bought he bought followers right yeah. Uh, he bought about a third of his followers, right? The study found, um, and the, the rationale for that is basically that the third that it appears that he bought are located in India and the Philippines. So that's two two countries where a lot of follower buying happens, plus two countries that aren't don't have a population that speaks a Cambodian language, right? Yeah. So that wouldn't really make sense for them to be following somebody who's pretty much posting exclusively in Khmer, right? So basically the the opposition wanted to approach facebook about this thing which was public by the way it became like a news story they wanted to say to facebook well why don't you take down his account because you say that follower buying is not permissible on your platform and facebook just like really didn't engage with them at that time on that and then now sam Z is actually trying to take facebook to court in california to try to get them to reveal some of this information
0: wow so basically struggles over the government of a country are being conducted in californian courts with facebook
1: yeah it's very strange like if you if you're a person from a small country and you really want international attention to a problem if like if you're just talking about my authoritarian government is screwed up the reality is most people in the west aren't going to pay attention to that right yeah but if it's about a, a western company then suddenly it becomes this international news story and i don't wanna criticize too much but like that the situation in Sri Lanka we just talked about, the New York Times did a really big piece on that. And there was some criticism from Sri Lankan activists that they put too much emphasis on the Facebook side. And they were saying like, we've had these problems forever. Fundamentally, like at its core, it's it's not that Facebook caused the problem, right? It's the problems are deeply rooted in that society. like problems with impunity for the government like you know media that is being unfair towards ethnic minorities you know just like all kinds of stuff and like you have journalists coming in from outside and they, they want to make it about Facebook but it's like it's actually far more complex than that I think.
0: On the topic of the social media companies I think it's important to recognize that a lot of these companies have put more energy and effort by necessity into thinking about these issues than has ever been put into them before and They've now developed, you know, very sophisticated understandings of the public sphere and free speech and, and their policies on freedom of speech and what constitutes violations that, you know, should, shouldn't should be allowed to be free, uh, committed freely. These are questions that even governments haven't been required to address in the past. Right. So they're being forced to operate at a level of sophistication, which is incredibly high. So it's not like they're doing absolutely nothing. Right. But it's that they're not really taking their responsibilities to act very seriously in a lot of these cases in reinforcing these policies and, and making sure that they're carried out consistently.
1: I think Zuckerberg sort of alluded to this in his testimony to Congress. I mean the issue for them is one of scale. Like you can't scale that. You can't you can't be a comp- company that's going to be, you know, the public square in so many parts of the world and then also like regulate speech to the extent that people want you to. Like how many monitors are they gonna hire, right? This is all this stuff is done by humans now. So for Facebook, I think Zuckerberg feels that AI has to be part of this equation. But we're definitely not close to the point where this can be done by a machine.
0: I think possibly we're expecting for too much of it to be done by AI and as yeah. this a reluctance to hire more human moderators on the part of the social media companies because they certainly have the budgets to you know they're making tens of billions in profit that's true. and they can hire people and it's it seems to be almost an insistence that no we're a tech company and if we're going to do this we're going to get ai to do
1: this right, right. yeah i think that's true you know, it's interesting because, like, it's not like Facebook has to regulate hate speech. Like, there's there's like an alternate universe, right? Like an alternate history where they had no kind of community standards that govern hate speech. Like, that would have made the platform look very different. Like, Facebook didn't want that for a reason, right?
0: I think it's also, it's not just the fact that there's hate speech on the platform, but it's the fact that they've been making decisions which affect what the users are exposed to. So right. the, the filter bubbles, um, the way that they, they tailor the news feed, which basically enhances polarization. It's the way that their algorithms are optimized for engagement, which basically makes stuff that is controversial come to the top and, and become most visible, which means that you get the shocking opinions spreading. So basically, it's not neutral. They've made decisions which has helped this content spread faster than it would have without them.
1: I think that's true.
0: And that's what they're being held accountable for.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's sad, though, because I do think that Facebook has had beneficial impacts in these countries, too. Like Cambodia, for instance. You know, independent media in Cambodia has benefited, like, hugely from Facebook. And that became very obvious when Facebook did this experiment that basically siloed off, you know, official pages to a different section of the site. Um, So it it basically crashed the traffic for like a lot of these independent media organizations and like, you know, bloggers and people like that. So, I mean, it showed like how much they depended on that platform just to get their voices out.
0: So I started this conversation by declaring that I'm a fan of your work and I've been following you for a long time. (laughs) Um, You've written about the surveillance state in China. You've written about the impacts of Facebook on countries in Southeast Asia and You've done a lot of stuff on issues which people consider to be human rights issues. Do you consider yourself to be an activist?
1: I don't. I guess I came out of a very American kind of journalism tradition. And I think Americans really want journalists to be neutral. I mean, maybe neutrality is the wrong word, but you want to use a kind of like deductive reasoning type framework as a journalist, I think. You, you don't want to go in with a your mind already made up, right? Like, that wouldn't be right. And like, I wouldn't want people that I interview to think that my mind is already made up yeah yeah but I mean I think by the same token like we don't want to be sonographers right
0: I'd say that the very fact that you are choosing these issues to focus on I don't know if you'd agree or not would say that you are trying to push in a certain direction and that you want certain issues to be brought to light so that people can act on them um, you're basically reporting on the stuff that you think is important for us to know and it affects our society, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. You know, I have some trouble with this. I used to work at Reuters for four years. Reuters, very, very down the middle. They take objectivity extremely seriously, like to the point that they don't use the word terrorist unless they're quoting somebody else saying it. And like they got in some trouble in the US for that in terms of public opinion after 9-11. Yeah, I think there's there's some merit to that way of thinking. Yeah, I was I was writing my... The, the talk that I just gave at the Azo Freedom Forum, which was about uh, mass surveillance in, in Xinjiang and, and also in the rest of China. And, you know, I had this moment of like anxiety, like, oh, my God, I'm really being I feel like this is too opinionated. And then somebody somebody else who's at this conference, um, Wael Ghanim.
0: Yeah, the Egyptian uh, blogger.
1: He was like, you must be kidding yourself. Like, I mean, obviously, you have a point of view like you're not a robot. And then I started to think like, well, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid people are going to think that I think that it's not okay to imprison tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in prison camps? Like, I mean, is that really an opinion that's going to cause controversy? Like, so I think some things are fundamental, you know,
0: I know this has been kind of a paradigm shift in academia as well in uh, uh, ethnography and sociology. Um, in the past, people would try to write their own perspective out of their account. Mm-hmm. So they would try and like, they, they would almost pretend that this information is being presented completely neutrally when it's always being presented from within a paradigm. Mm-hmm. And what they're pushing towards now is you basically acknowledge your own subjectivity and positionality with respect to the topic. Yeah. So you can say that I'm I'm reporting on this and I'm, I'm looking at this and studying this. Right. And obviously, I'm coming to this as an ex, whether that's as a Westerner, as a a secular person, as a religious person, as a as a male, as a female, right. etc. And therefore, if you're reading this, you can look at the era I was writing in, the context that I was writing in, and, and the the situation I was operating within. And you might even be able to unpick what you think are my own subjectivities and say, well, they said this, but, you know, I think a bit of the writer is creeping into this. So I'm going to take that out. And, you know, you, you can basically decide more independently what it is that you want to trust rather than assuming that this often highly subjective interpreter is is uh, universal and this happens a lot with for example middle eastern studies where a mm-hmm. lot of it was filtered through white middle-aged male academics right. and yet it's treated as very objective
1: right it, it does help to have an outsider's perspective sometimes like of course i'm an outsider in the place that i cover so of course i'm going to say that but um in general i think we don't we don't really pay enough attention to people who are writing about their own countries
0: you have a lot of really cool stories about China. Uh, tell, tell me, like, the most shocking thing or your favorite story or, like, the, the best thing you've seen whilst there.
1: Yeah, I mean, people ask a lot, like, you know, how do you interact with the authorities? Like, do you have a minder? like, all of this sort of stuff? And, you know, I, I was reading, gosh, her name is escaping me. There's a woman who's a longtime correspondent for Newsweek in Iran, and she's written two memoirs about young people in Iran. And she, she wrote this story, it's like an anecdote, about her minder in Tehran. And she, she told these stories about how he would come to her apartment and just intimidate the hell out of her, and she just was so afraid of this guy. And I read her book before I started working in China, and I, I was like, well, what if it's like that? And it's really not like that in China. It's like, it's a lot more like, you just get the sense that these people are functionaries. And sometimes they're they're very bright functionaries, like people who work at the foreign ministry, you know, they can be very erudite. They're diplomats, obviously, so like you know, quite worldly and and smart about world events. But then you go to these random places in the countryside and people will follow you just because they don't want you to be there and cause trouble, but they don't really care. Like, they really don't care. And like, I have a couple of stories about that. So there's this guy in Kashgar in southern Xinjiang, and he goes by the name Michael, but his real name is Rashad, but he's, he's like this young Uyghur guy and he is in charge of like minding all of the foreign journalists that come through and he just like follows them around. But he's such like an, I would, I wish I had profiled him. Like he's such an interesting person. His English is impeccable, even though he's never left the country. And he learned it all from watching this TV show called Prison Break, which hmm. I had never, I mean, I didn't know about it until I went to China, but it's one of these things that's super popular in China and nobody knows about it in the U.S. The thing that's funny about that to me is like he doesn't he doesn't care about journalists. He doesn't care about the politics of Xinjiang He doesn't care about anything. He's just not a political person. But he's doing it because he is a kid and he has to support his kid. But like he, all he wants to do is talk about American culture. Like he's just like, well, what do you watch? Like what are people watching now? I'm like, I don't know. Game of Thrones. He's like, oh, what about Breaking Bad? It's like, yeah, it's like it's so funny. Um, yeah. And there's other time like we were up by the North Korean border Basically, there's like three towns in the province of Zilin that are near the North Korean border. And we were going to do like kind of on the ground interviews with people there. And it was me and my coworker who's um, like a cameraman. And basically, we got to this one town that's like right on the Tumen River between China and North Korea. And these police officers were there. And then they they detained us. And they're like, "Okay, well, we're going to take you to the train station and then you just get right back on the train to the next big city and then we'll be done basically we got to the train station and of course we did not buy the tickets we were supposed to buy. We just bought it to the next town over and thinking we could get away with it, we just like sat in the waiting room waiting for the train and then the police officer comes inside and he's like, okay, fine. Let me see your tickets. And then we had to show him and he was like, god damn it, <laughs> you people. And he was like, fine. So then we got on the train, we got to the next town over and then sure enough we were being followed. But then it's like, they're so like, they just didn't even care if we knew, right? Because it's like, it's just for the appearance of the thing. It's not yeah. to actually accomplish anything, right? So and it's just because they're they're obligated to do it. And then so then we went for lunch. And then I was like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we brought this guy some food? And so then we actually did. And then the, re- the rest of the day, it was like it can only be described as like a low speed car chase. So yeah, it's like I think it's like it's a lot less scary sometimes than people think
0: it is. But there are the, the scary ones. There's this video that was just surreal that BBC News put out mm. um, of a woman who decided to nominate herself as an independent candidate for the election. Oh, I
1: saw that. Yeah. And,
0: and they were coming up to her house to interview her. It's Have you seen The Matrix? Yeah. You know where all the, the agents are coming out of nowhere yeah. and like clones and they're just like yeah, yeah. appearing in a crowd. And they were basically these quite burly, thuggish men yeah, yeah. with sunglasses just appearing from all over and, like, blocking the door. And then the woman went round to the window to speak to them through the window, and this guy started shutting the window from her on the outside. Then they made a ring around the house and pushed the journalists away.
1: That's normal. That happens all the time. And I'm really glad that BBC did that. You know, after, after BBC did that, a lot of my friends in China were like, why is BBC doing this? Like, that's so stupid. Everybody knows about this. People don't know that it's like that. No, nobody knows. And that is so normal. That happens all the time. And it's just like... It's just manpower. It's pure manpower. It's like, well, this dissident lives here and, like, we can send 30 people. So, like, why wouldn't we send 30 people? Just make
0: a show of strength?
1: Yeah. It's just, like, I don't even know what that's about. I mean, it's it's funny that they do it with, like, even the thugs. It's, like, they have these thugs and it's, like, a thin, like, the thinnest veneer of plausible deniability. Because the, the thugs, they all have the same body type. They're all wearing a polo shirt and khakis. It's always a polo shirt and khakis. And they have that crew cut. So it's like, I know that you're not, yeah, it's like, you could at least, like, break it up a little bit, you know, like, kind of give me something to work with here.
0: Well, they, they haven't been known for their creativity dictators and authoritarian regimes.
1: Yeah, I mean, if they're secure, they don't need to be creative, I guess. Yeah. But I, I will say, like, I don't like to talk about this stuff because, like, as foreigners, we have no reason to complain. Like, this, I can laugh about this, but... For that woman who's standing for election, like, her her safety's in danger. Like, yeah. her freedom is in danger.
0: I like, can't imagine how intimidated I would be if that was my house and I was basically being yeah. encircled I'm, inside.
1: She's brave as hell. She was sticking her uh, head out the window and yelling at the BBC reporter, like, her answers to his questions. Like, it was, it was unbelievable for me to see that, yeah.
0: Megha Rajagopal, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been an incredible conversation. And if our listeners enjoy it even half as much as I did, it's going to be a very well-received podcast.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. I learned a lot.
0: And we can find you on Twitter at yeah. Um You write for BuzzFeed and you just did a talk at the Oslo Freedom Forum. And the links to all of those things will be in the description of the podcast. Thanks. And thank you. يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف
1: ويا زمان سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمان سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف And maybe someday.